0: Hey, welcome back. Uh, I wanted to once again share some some thoughts on the ongoing situation with the coronavirus, the COVID-19 uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, whatever term you want to use and and it's a uh, it's so rapidly evolving. I mean, this has honestly been some of the most interesting few weeks for me as a podcaster as well as somebody that enjoys watching The markets, the financial system, the economy, what makes it tick. And honestly, what's most interesting to me is what happens when it doesn't tick, when it's out of sequence, when it's something's awry. And and I think needless to say, something is awry with the financial system, uh, the markets right now. I mean, if you use the backdrop of everything that's happening right now in terms of of stimulus, in terms of... of, uh, promised stimulus in the future from the government as well as um, potential stimulus, uh, sorry, uh, promised stimulus from the federal government and, and fiscal stimulus the world over, as well as uh, already realized stimulus from from the Fed, from other central banks, uh, when you use that a backdrop for the, the huge drop in yields that we've seen on the U.S. tenure over the last, um, you know, last, I mean, granted, they are up today a fair bit. Uh, actually, over 0.8% today, a whopping 82 and a half basis points, but still much, much lower than where they were, you know, a couple of weeks ago, as well as the, the the stock market, which today is, you know, as as uh, Zero Hedge so nicely put it, uh, is shown that yesterday was the dead not cat bounce, but the dead bat bounce, right as I speak. Uh, Dow Jones down over 1,100 points today. Uh, everything, of course, what's happening with, with the credit markets. I mean, this is intensely interesting to me. And and to make that part brief before I move on to the COVID-19 portion of this podcast, simply put, I mean, the losses right now on the equity side of things is, is pretty astounding. I mean, we're in a bear market with with today, I mean, based on where things are heading, and again, that's despite the promised stimulus by the U.S. government, the already hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars of stimulus to the Fed and, and other central banks. Uh, the loss is astounding, and, and there's also reason to believe that the implications are broader than just, you know, my 401k or my retirement fund took a hit. Uh, more so, systemic problems are emerging. You know, Zero Hedge pointed out that Boeing, for example, uh, used up their recently issued revolving line of credit. I want to say it was over, I'd have to check the exact numbers on it, but several, over $10 billion worth. Point being, not necessarily the size of it, but more so that this was recently issued to them a couple of weeks ago. And they took it all out right now. Probably not because they need it right now, but they're not sure if it'll be there next week because, of course, the trend back during the financial crisis was that a lot of banks took those types of lines of credit away in order to better capitalize themselves and maintain their own liquidity, right? Uh, on the the corporate debt side of things, um, not necessarily revolving, but just uh, corporate debt, you see this recent drop in the price of oil uh, really affecting... Uh, corporate bond markets almost as much as it's affecting you know potentially you know profits of some of these big oil producers i mean namely it's share Oil. i think it was put really well as this morning i was listening to to mckelvaney weekly commentary and and they pointed out i think pretty well that you can see this as saudi Arabia and russia kind of duking it out but what if you know i don't know if they presented it quite this way but what if you know this is them making it look like that like they're actually going against each other when in reality their enemy is not necessarily each other. Their enemy is the biggest player on the block, and that is the United States, the largest producer in the world of crude oil, largely from shale oil. And, and of course, if if they're both flooding the market with oil, yeah, it's going to suck for them. But but guess who uh, holds the better hand here? If this is you know a game of poker, I think they use that analogy. It's certainly Saudi Arabia and and, and Russia compared to the United States. Our shale oil sector is is extremely fragile. And and deeply deeply unprofitable, you know. The point they made is that it's, you know, I, I think uh, uh, some of the research eighty dollars a barrel for Saudi Arabia to break even, not on extracting a barrel of oil, but but to make up for all the social entitlements and stuff that that come along with with. Being a wealthy oil-producing nation, um, pretty high price for Russia as well. They're not necessarily losing money at whatever it is right now, uh, but certainly these shell oil companies are, right? They need much higher uh, uh, price to, to to be cash flow positive on all this. So, so that's all. I mean, this is honestly, this isn't just markets moving. This isn't just my retirement fund's not looking great. This is systemic problems that we're running into, and the longer the duration of this turmoil is the greater the action by the Fed, the greater the action by the the, the federal government and other governments the world over, central banks the world over, but also the greater risk of real systemic, dare I say, collapse, or something similar to that. Well, if that wasn't doom and gloom enough, let's talk about the coronavirus. First of all, we can start with the, the good news, which has been trending in the right direction for a while now. Some countries have figured out the the blueprint for this as as I think Chris Martinson would put it, the gold standard of controlling an outbreak. South Korea seemed to be on top of it. Right? They had over 7 they have over 7,000 cases and yet not much of an increase. They've really kept that under control. Now, at any point that it could explode again. Right. We know there's. I'm sure there's still loose cases in, in South Korea, but they're doing a good job of controlling it, considering the scale of that outbreak. Uh, and then, of course, there's other ones such as uh, Hong Kong and, and, and Singapore, you know, both of which are in the hundreds, uh, a little over 100, but not even 200 cases confirmed. Again, there's always the risk, but they're managing it very well compared to most European countries. Um, Iran, which, you know, we will never probably get a full scale, full idea of the scale of that in Iran um and of course the united states uh the united states i i think is doing perhaps i'll put it this way i think us is doing the worst job globally of managing the coronavirus outbreak the covid-19 and i know i know what about india what about you know i don't know egypt Nigeria, you know, what about those countries? They probably have outbreaks brewing, and I agree. Are they testing for it? Not nearly as widely as we are. Are they instituting some form of quarantines or travel restrictions? Or, or, you know, are are large events and large gatherings not happening in those places? Probably not to the same extent as the United States. But why do I think the U.S. is doing the worst job here, mismanaging this in, in the worst possible way? We're the United States. On paper, and and Donald Trump had mentioned this, you know, in, in a speech probably a week or two ago now. On paper, the U.S. is supposed to be the best country to deal with a pandemic. Right? We're supposed to be the top dog. The CDC, all the money that it has, and, and other you know state agencies, federal agencies, they, of all the countries, we were supposed to be able to manage this the best. And add on to that the fact that this didn't start in the U.S., it started in China. And in fact, there were other countries, including South Korea, Iran, and to some extent Italy, that all had it much worse than we're going to have it ahead of time. And And we had a warning of what happens when it gets out of control. We also have had blueprints for what to do in order to control it, including South Korea, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, right? Plus, we have all these resources, high technology. um, We we have the benefit of of a much greater uh, penetration of media and and social media to to spread things like prevention, importance of self-quarantine, importance of social distancing. And we just haven't done a whole lot with it. We bungled the the rollout of the test, and and finally it's getting on on track here. But but honestly, you know where I think the U.S. is. I mean, if you look at confirmed cases relative to our entire population, it looks like on paper we are where Italy was, you know, two weeks ago, right? And and so we have two weeks right before we're going to be able to get Italy, but. I think that our testing has been much, much worse than it has been in Italy, uh, Spain, Germany, France, and and some of those other uh, European countries. I, you know, again, I'd, I haven't reviewed all these countries individually, but uh, in the UK, we're doing far less testing, though. I can almost guarantee it than any of those countries, right? Some of those countries have more confirmed cases. Italy has more confirmed cases than we have done tests, so I suspect that the reality of the situation in the U.S. is that we're more like a Spain, a France, a Germany right now. We're not a week behind them. I think we're on pace with them. We just have, haven't tested enough, right? And what that means is that we're not two weeks out from Italy. We're maybe a week out from Italy, right? Or we're certainly getting close to that. And, and this isn't, you know, Italy's a relatively smaller country, Right. And, and this certainly was more relegated to the Lombardy, the Milan region. And, and the U.S. is very expansive. Right. Um, but I think that we are a week out, honestly, a week out from Italy, maybe not Italy where it is now, but, you know, in, in some of these areas, whether it be Seattle, which is getting close to that, you know, some Californian cities, uh, New York City, Boston. Uh, those cities are, are getting very close to that. And I think there's a lot more that haven't even registered on the radar as being potential hotspots, but are it's just, again, not enough testing being done. So what do we do with this information? You know, I was listening to to you know, I mentioned the podcast from this morning, McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, where they were pointing out uh, you know, oil with Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, or sorry, sorry, Saudi Arabia and Russia. But I was listening to a pair of different, uh, um, I guess, interviews, discussions last week, or last night, actually. And, and one of them that I found very interesting was with a an Italian, I believe he's Italian. You know, I think his name, his title was an intensivist. He's a doctor, uh, I believe, and, and specialized in intensive care, intensivist, right? Um, very familiar with what's going on in Northern Italy right now. And and it was a good. I think Italy is a good good example, not of of what just a standard outbreak break looks like with this COVID nineteen, but what an outbreak looks like when the system is really saturated to its max, it's stretched to its max, and then some. And because of that, you see high case fatality rates. I mean, this is still relatively early on in Italy, and and I checked yesterday, their their death rate in some of these areas was you know around eight percent. Now, is that actually 8%? No, it's probably that they're just not testing and they're missing a lot of asymptomatic or less severe cases. But again, it's early on. So there's also going to be a lot of people that only got infected a week ago, two weeks ago, and it hasn't so much, you know, run its course yet. It still has a ways to go and and many of them will die. So, I mean, it could go either way, but, but a very high case fatality rate or ratio relative to maybe some, you know, south korea or or japan or something like that and he was talking about you know uh, to 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 make this really hit home this isn't just the flu he's talking about the average age sorry not the average the median age of admission to the icu meaning you can almost translate that to a high likelihood of death without another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it An ICU room. When you see somebody's in critical condition, we're talking about probably you know some sort of ventilation, intubation, um, most likely oxygen supplementation, um, probably some various medications, including uh, but not limited to ones that act on the airways, the lungs themselves. Of course, antibiotics to counter not the virus but any bacterial infections that may take. Uh, may take a uh, form in, in, in the lungs, you know, a bacterial pneumonia on top of a viral pneumonia and plenty of other care, right? Um, those are all potential things that would be required in an ICU. And of course, without it, you have a good chance of dying, right? The median age, 65. And of course, median means half were older than 65. And and people find that comforting somehow. I mean, I'd Gosh, I, mean, I think of all the 65-plus-year-olds I know that I would probably not want to see die. Hey, I'll go out on a limb and say, I don't want to see any of them die, right, from a, from a virus. But it also means half are under 65. And, and I tend to think that we're not just talking about half over 65 and half between 60 and 65. In fact, I know for sure. He mentioned, another interesting thing, 20-year-old male intubated, Right? That's, that would have been a death, absent the level of care that they were able to provide. But again, stretched to its limits, and then some, the healthcare system in northern Italy. And I think that's going to happen in a lot of U.S. cities pretty quickly here. Now, does this mean that we should panic? You know, another interesting discussion I was listening to, a guy by the name of Nassim Taleb, uh... Kind of, you know, on and off followed him, and I know of him. He's a big statistician, right? And and he was pointing out, you know, you, you can't compare the number of deaths from the coronavirus to the flu or anything else because that's just a, that's a huge fallacy. That's a huge statistical error because you're not looking, at you're not comparing apples and oranges, right? You're getting closer if you're comparing things like case fatality rate or number of people that need to be uh, admitted to the hospital, um, or or need to be put on ventilators or or brought to an ICU you're getting closer to a good apples to apples comparison but just looking at deaths to deaths it's not not a good comparison but the other point that he was making in terms of panic and I think we have to I have to agree is that individually we we shouldn't be panicking as a society we absolutely should be panicking right and and what does that mean well as an individual panicking might mean you know Heading into the fallout bunker. No, I'm maybe buying an inordinate amount of toilet paper at the store, and not just because you think it's going to be sold out next week. And I'll be honest, I bought some a reasonable amount, guys. But but I I bought some extra toilet paper the other day, not necessarily because I think I'm going to be homebound for. It, that's a very distinct possibility, maybe a likelihood. Um, but because I, I'm convinced that it's going to be sold out pretty darn quick here. And in fact, you know, I haven't been to Walmart in a while, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is. Right. Certainly a lot of the cleaning products were were sold out. Bought a lot of hand sanitizer a couple weeks back. Very cheap, you know, three or four, five bucks for a big bottle from, from, I think, a Quate brand. That's being sold out in a lot of places. Right. But it was reasonable. It wasn't like I was filling my cart with it. Um, but, but that unreasonable panic maybe at this point is is not at all justified. Individual panic, not justified. It's better to be prepared to maybe be a little bit alarmed or at least aware, concerned. Those are all good words. Panic, maybe not. But as a society, even as a government, I think panic is appropriate. Panic ultimately brings about action. And when it comes to pandemics, I saw it said somewhere, and again, I don't know the exact... who. I'll, I'll find who... Who said this? I'll get this exact quote for you. But basically, panic is not necessarily a, a bad thing or, or, or taking significant action against something like a pandemic. Not necessarily um, a bad thing. Here we go. This is from uh, M. Leave It. I uh, don't know who that is. This is just from a Twitter account that I saw, and I think it's a great point. Quote, everything we do before a pandemic will seem alarmist. Everything we do after will seem inadequate. So yeah, I think as a society, as a government, it's time to panic, and that doesn't mean running around with your heads cut off. Doesn't mean martial law. Doesn't mean, but some serious actions. And and please, you know, government officials, president, president's team on on the coronavirus, um, stop telling everybody that it's just going to go away, that it's not a big deal. Again, if you're looking at northern Italy. 65, median age of ICU admission. 20-year-old intubated. That is not what happens with the flu. This isn't a death sentence, but it's serious. Okay, We need to start taking serious steps. I think another point, I think that it was them that was making, naseem Taleb and this other individual, was that we need to start acting proactively. We need to get ahead of this. Right now, basically every action that that the U.S. government, the CDC, even a lot of these state agencies, hospitals, uh, etc., are making right now, honestly are targeted at what's going on right now in the United States. The situation right now, as we know it for sure. But come on, epidemiologists, uh, statisticians, etc., uh are smart enough, insightful enough, generally should and probably do have a fair bit of of capacity for critical thinking and know that that right now the 1000 cases in the United States is probably a small fraction maybe a magnitude of you know magnitude of 10 or or 10% of the actual amount of cases here in the United States and guess what let's say hypothetically and I think this is a good estimate 10,000 cases right now in the United States cases meaning if they were tested, they would test positive, may or may not have symptoms, but, you know, people that are infected with it. Guess what? A week from now, that's going to be 20,000. A week from then, probably 40,000, right? And then at some point, you know, things like social distancing and whatnot. Um, and, and those are those are conservative. Actually, it could be greater than that, right? It could be tw- 25,000, right? Not confirmed. Again, we're, we're never going to get all the confirmed cases. Um, it, but it could be greater than that. It could be 50,000 two weeks from now. Uh, we need to start planning and acting as if that's reality now rather than acting as though the reality right now is just 10,000 cases or what everyone kind of assumes, 1,000 cases, which is a small, I think, fraction of, of the actual amount. So I guess what I'm saying here is is being mentally prepared is, is maybe the biggest part of this all. Right, I mean, buying supplies, all that is, is important and whatnot. Adjusting your behavior, whether it's washing hands or other things, is not a bad idea. But I think panic at the societal level, action, major action, is appropriate right now, is appropriate a week. A month ago, right, I've been sounding an alarm on this for weeks. In fact, I had somebody comment the other day, and I appreciate it. Again, I don't want to toot my own horn here. But I've been on this, I think the first time I mentioned it was January 21st. Relatively early, but not the earliest among all the people out there that have been watching this. Um, this was from a uh, long-time uh, listener. I'll have to find it here. Jesse Zander. You saw the Black Swan coming way ahead of time. I was actually wondering about your intense focus early on, so early on when this started. Now it's very clear. It's a game of chicken. Global Panic is here. Yada, yada, yada. About... Um, yeah, silver. The rest is about silver and certainly relevant, but but, yeah, important to read and whatnot. But um, again, I'm not trying to toot my own horn or something like that. What I'm saying here, though, is that this is should have been on the CDC's radar, not just on the radar, but they should have been acting months ago. Not just a kind of a a, a light travel ban on China. I'm talking like major containment strategies. We're past containment, we're at mitigation now. The rest of this spring and even into summer is going to be one of the most peculiar, I think, across this country, across this world, um, relative to what we've experienced in this generation. Again, you know, back in, uh, I'll define the video here, Uh, a couple weeks ago, I put out a podcast video titled, uh, A Defining Event of Our Generation. Even back then, I was kind of thinking, wow, are you being a little heavy-handed with this? A little alarmist here. Uh, This was three weeks ago. I'll get a date for you here. Um, February 14th, Valentine's Day. Uh, I said this as a potential to be the biggest story for the next decade or more, the defining event of our generation. And uh, some people were kind of saying, um, no, I I don't think so. Let's see, I want to... See if I can find there's one, uh, or at least one comment in here. And I, I think my audio was poor back then for that one specifically. But uh, here we go. Somebody commented, James Wonker back then, Come on, get a grip, people. It's a designer virus, the same as with AIDS. Quote Bill Gates If we do a really good job with vaccinations, we can decrease the population year after year. Do you know who Bill Gates' father was? He's was a head man for Planned Parenthood, yada yada yada. It's all about decreasing, whatever you know. General stack back then. Bro, you are miscalculated, or miscalibrated this bad, but not to find event of regeneration. There are billions of people out there. This isn't even a drop in the bucket. 3% death rate is sad, but not catastrophic. Right, it's not catastrophic, but a 3% death rate is still 9, probably 10 million people here in the United States. 10 million plus, if everyone got it. 5 million, if only half get it, roughly speaking. Broad numbers here. That's... Hey, what was the death toll for World War I? I I want to say the U.S. death toll for World War I and World War II combined was less than 5 million. And and I can check here real quick how many people died. um, But I know the United States was far less than a lot of other countries. Uh, I know I'm always looking these up on the go. But but the United States was a... Let's see here. Yeah, I mean the United States was relatively small. I don't even know. I don't even know if it was a a million, maybe a couple million, but I mean it was tiny, you know, to five million. So that that is maybe not catastrophic, like end of the world, you know, humanity as we know it's over. But that's I would I think that would qualify as a defining event for our generation, certainly financially speaking. So as always, though, I appreciate you guys tuning in. Love to. Uh, I'll come back tomorrow or or Friday again with my thoughts. Um, but, uh, I'm glad that you guys can, can stick with this and at least get the mental preparation piece out of hand or or out of the way. So as always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in and God bless.